The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So a couple of days ago, I was sitting in my car in a parking lot in the rain waiting for one of my children to finish an activity. Yes, this is very much a normal part of this glamorous stage of life that we are at. Um, to be fair, I was waiting outside by choice. I could have been waiting inside, but I chose to wait outside for a while and just give myself some personal space. Um, and I happened to park near the fence of the property I was at. And as I was sitting in the car, I, I could see behind me and a man was passing and he stopped by the fence and he called out to the parking attendant who was kind of standing in front of me with his umbrella trying to do his job of guiding people where to park. And I'm hearing enough to recognize that the man at the fence has begun his sob story, just kind of working his way up to asking the parking attendant to give him some money. Now, at this point, my expectation was that this would be a very short conversation. Admittedly, one of my many flaws is that I often do not judge charitably. I make uncharitable judgments about other people and assumptions about other people. And in the moment, I figured that there was no chance that this parking attendant, who probably was not being paid very well in the first place, uh, would give anything to this man, even if he had something on him. So, and, and, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, boy, you know, this kind of begging is so tiresome. You know, I'm sorry, things have to be like this. And so I fully expected the parking attendant to say something like, like boy, boy, Bridgen, no, nothing upon me, no. To my surprise and shame, the parking attendant listened quietly for a while, and then he took out the $100 the guy was asking for and gave it to him. And the gratitude that that man expressed, just the way he just kind of erupted in joy, took much, much longer than the sub-story he was telling. And I realized that how I was listening to the conversation was a reflection of my own calloused heart and had nothing to do with the two men involved. I realized that I missed an opportunity to enter another person's suffering and to feel compassion for them in their hopelessness. And even though I witnessed it, I missed the opportunity to share the joy because I didn't share the pain. Today, as you heard, we're beginning a four-week series in the book of Ruth. And I tell you my story from this week in hopes that you'll do a better job of listening to this story than I did of listening to that conversation. You see, sometimes our calloused hearts and our assumptions affect how we listen to the stories given to us in the scriptures. And I don't want you to be like me. I want you to listen with expectation and to pay attention to the details and to draw near to the people who populate this story. You see, this is a wonderful story and it's really, really well told. I want you to get close to these people, to enter their losses and disappointments, feel their neediness, dare to hope with them, and enter the joy of redemption with them. I don't want you to be this kind of dispassionate observer but to get caught up instead in the wonder of this story as God moves behind the scenes and brings unimaginable blessings to the lives of seemingly insignificant and suffering people. So with that said, let's expectantly read Ruth chapter 1. This is God's holy word given to us so that we might hope even in the hardest of circumstances. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. The first chapter of Ruth, this first chapter of Ruth, is not exactly sunny, is it? It takes us down into the depths of the disappointment and loss experienced by Naomi. But it is a worthwhile journey for us because we too walk through suffering and would be served by learning that in God's providence, as John Piper puts it, the worst of times are not wasted. So what we'll do is we'll break this journey into three stages. The emptying of Naomi, verses 1 to 5. 
the road back home, verses 6 to 18, and the bitter return to, Jer to, to, to Bethlehem, sorry, verses 19 to 22. So first then, the emptying of Naomi. The first thing we ought to do is get our bearings. If we're going to understand this story, we need to know when this is. Verse 1 tells us that we are in the time of the judges, and that carries tremendous meaning. The time of the judges followed the largely successful conquest of Canaan that was led by Joshua. God had brought the children of Israel into the land that he promised them, but they had reneged on their promises to him, to be faithful to him as their God. These were dark days. For 400 years, Israel went through a cycle of rebellion, judgment, repentance, and deliverance, spiraling down each time, down and down, into greater and greater immorality. And if you look back in your Bibles at the end of the book of Judges, which is right before this book of Ruth, you can see the indictment given in chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was a time of famine. In the book of Judges, God's judgment frequently came through Israel's surrounding enemies. We were, we're not told in the story of Ruth the cause of this famine, but God had warned Israel that this was one of the ways he judged the disobedience. In Leviticus 26, 19-20, he says, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So, because of when this is and what Israel is experiencing, it's not a difficult equation to solve to recognize that Israel was experiencing God's judgment for their ongoing rebellion. But where this family fled to is also problematic. Moab, you see, was a pagan nation. Their origins were shameful, and not only had they refused to give Israel safe passage through their territory to the Promised Land, but they conspired to seduce Israel with their women, leading to God's judgment. When God listed those who could not gather with, God, with his people, who could not assemble with them for worship, Moabites were included on that list. Just mention Moab to an Israelite, and you'd get a reaction of disgust. My friend Joel Shorey, describes growing up in New Jersey and therefore being the butt of many a joke among New Englanders. His constant retort at that time was, at least I'm not from Delaware. Guess where he planted a church last year? Delaware. Yeah, Delaware. Relocating his family to this despised nation was very questionable, questionable leadership on the part of Elimelech. God had called Israel to be separate from the nations around them and he was leading them away from the land where God promised to dwell with his people. Elimelech's name means God is king. But you look at these actions and it seems more like every man for himself, or at least every family for themselves. And do you know what Bethlehem means? Bethlehem means house of bread. But because the house of bread was empty, this family left the land that God had given them and went to find refuge from God's judgment in the fields of their enemies. It wasn't their plan to stay there long term. Verse 1 says they went to sojourn in Moab, indicating a short stay. But by verse 3, it says they remained there. It's much easier than you might think 
to settle down in a place where we never intended to stay for long. Sometimes we leave places where God means to bless us. We leave the shelter of godly friendships when they become difficult. We stop reading the Bible or praying when we're suffering and confused and God seems far away and it does not seem fruitful. We withdraw from gathering with God's people for Sunday worship when it doesn't seem to soothe the pain, but only make it worse. We withdraw looking for refuge, but it wasn't our plan necessarily to remain there. But months pass, and then years pass. And one day we wake up realizing that we've become accustomed to trying to make the best of it where we shouldn't be at all. The time in Moab didn't go as they expected. When, when, when a man and a woman walk down the aisle, as a couple will do later, they expect to grow old together. But Elimelech died and Naomi became a widow, left with her two sons. They married Moabite, Moabite women, though marriages to foreigners were prohibited. And after ten childless years, both sons die. When we welcome the gift of children, we do not expect to be burying them. Naomi now lost her husband and her sons. And we, the readers, can't help but suspect what Naomi was convinced of. God was against her. She says as much later in the chapter, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This was the emptying of Naomi. In those times, much more so than now, a widow was vulnerable and economically exposed. But at least she had her two sons who could protect her and provide for her and could continue the family line until she didn't and they didn't. And now all her security was stripped from her and she was left exposed and far from home. How much of Naomi's suffering was a result of her own sin or her family's sin? We don't know. The narrator is just telling the story. But that's tremendously helpful, isn't it? We can't know such things with certainty about Naomi any more than we can know such things with certainty about ourselves. What we can know, what we do know, is that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because in his death, Jesus bore the full weight of the condemnation that we deserve. There's no condemnation, but there are consequences. And there's discipline. And there's suffering and all kinds of it. But if we are in Jesus, we can know that God is lovingly and wisely in control of it all. And we can learn to trust him as he writes our story. That's why, in fact, we have Naomi's story. That's why we have Ruth's story. Romans 15:4 counsels, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. For Naomi, good news reached her in the fields of Moab that offered a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 6 with me. She heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the three widows got up and packed up and started on the road back home. Our focus will be verses 6 through 18. Somewhere along the 50-mile journey on the road from Moab back to Bethlehem, Naomi had an arresting realization. She was the only one going back home. Her daughters-in-law 
Orpah and Ruth were actually leaving the only home they had known. And they were leaving because of her. So she begins a difficult and heartbreaking conversation. She stops the journey to tell them to return, to go back to Moab. And the narrator reports the interaction in much detail. And I think he does so, so that we would understand and empathize with Naomi and marvel at Ruth. Naomi genuinely loves her daughters-in-law. She is a woman of faith, but her faith has been clouded because of her suffering. And her perspective has been shaped by their circumstances and the culture she lives in, much more than it has been shaped by God's word and God's promises. And every saint at some point in their lives, if not throughout the entirety of their lives, must contend with those temptations. Out of compassion, Naomi insists that these women should return to their mother's houses. They both had been good to her, displaying steadfast love towards their husbands and towards her, a love which reflected the love of God himself. And fascinatingly, Naomi, in sending them away, blesses them in the name of the Lord, using God's covenant name, expecting that God's covenant kindness would extend to them even in leaving her and returning to Moab. Yet, this faith is compromised because Naomi knows that to return to Moab would be to return to the gods of Moab. But even when these ladies, who evidently loved their mother-in-law dearly, in the midst of their tears, insisted that they wanted to return to Judah with her, she insisted that they shouldn't and made sure that they understood why. They were all widowed and childless. The best chance these younger women had was to remarry so that they could be secure. And that prospect lay behind them in Moab and not in front of them in Bethlehem. She of all people would understand what faced them in Judah because she had lived as a widow and as a foreigner in Moab. A Moabite woman had little chance of being welcomed in Judah. To go with her would be to commit to remaining in her family. The custom in Israel at the time was when a husband died, his brother or a near relative was to marry the widow in order to have children and to preserve the family name. But as far as Naomi was concerned, she could not provide them with husbands and therefore they would never bear children. Worst of all, she was the last person in the world they should be faithful to because God was against her. As far as she was concerned, God's storm clouds were following her around, and anyone near to her was going to get caught in the fury. Naomi's faith is all in knots. You see, Naomi has not stopped believing that God is good, that God shows covenant faithfulness. She stopped believing that God is good to her. Sometimes, as we struggle with our disappointment with God, We can't imagine the good that he has in store for us or the blessings he intends to become to others. You see, our disappointment doesn't just affect us. It affects how we relate to other people. It shapes our perspective on what is good. It's hard to invite other people into the love of Jesus when we are unsure of his love for us. It can be hard in our suffering and struggle to pray for others to experience God's goodness. The truth is, our current circumstances are always shaky ground on which to build our faith. 
Our faith must be built on the firm ground of the steadfast love that God has demonstrated for us at the cross and the absolute security of his blood-bought promises for our future. That's why we need encouragement, and we need it regularly, because discouragement and bitterness can cloud our perspective and flavor our relationships. In her blindness, Naomi didn't realize that God, who was extending undeserved mercy to his people in visiting them and giving them food, could and would also extend mercy to foreigners. Orpah, heartbroken, finally gives in to Naomi's pleading. But in an extraordinary demonstration of love, Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law. There's a beautiful song by a songwriter named Jill Phillips called Bear With You, and I've really come to love it. Um, it I, I, I heard it first in a time when I was struggling in a relationship with a friend. In this song, she says, There are no words of comfort you will let through. I see your face, but I don't recognize you. You cry for help and you push us away. I hurt you when I leave and when I stay. You run so you'll never be the last one left alone. You hide from the very ones who care for you the most. You're hanging by a thread, feeling left for dead. I'll bear with you. I'll bear with you instead. Ruth's own words in verses 16 and 17 are stunningly beautiful in their defiance and resolve. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, what's fascinating is that this poem is used often at weddings, as two people commit to each other. But on those occasions, they're looking into the future with hope. You know, it's joy, it's great expectation. That is not the future that Ruth was staring at down this dusty road. To adequately feel the magnificence of Ruth's words, we need to remember a few things. She made this commitment to her bitter mother-in-law, who thought that both of them would be better off without each other. And it meant leaving behind her culture and her family of origin and her religious background and her future prospects. She was promising not to remarry outside the family and thereby break her ties to Naomi. And even after Naomi's death, she was committing to live the rest of her life as a foreigner in a strange land. And lest we forget, Ruth was also grieving the death of her own husband. Jill Phillips continues, there's no way around this. You'll have to walk through. Let me go. Let me go with you. Naomi finally agreed, but without a word. And the two women continued together on the road back home. But as you'd understand, there was no joy or relief at the end of this journey. This was a bitter return to Bethlehem. Look with me at verses 19 to 22. Naomi's return caused quite a stir in Bethlehem. 
On one hand, the people were excited to see her, but they must also have been shocked at the appearance of their countrywoman who left with her husband and two sons, but returned broken by grief and age and alone apart from Ruth, her daughter-in-law. The women of the town said, is this Naomi? No, Naomi means pleasant. But the Naomi who returned was not that Naomi. The bitterness she had tasted had made her bitter. So much so that she insisted that when they addressed her from then on, they should call her bitter. For that is what Mara, the new name she gave herself, meant. And that name was a protest against God. God, she says, has dealt bitterly with her. This is precisely why some Christians don't think it's a helpful thing to believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God. Because when we suffer, how do we get around blaming God? But modifying the nature of God's rule protects neither his reputation nor our frail hearts. And it's not faithful to the testimony of Scripture. According to the Scriptures, God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he sends famine too. He kills and makes alive. He wounds and he heals. Naomi's problem isn't that she's wrong about God's sovereignty. It's that in her bitterness, she's been blinded to God's mercy. That's already at work for her good. And she has no idea what's in store for her either. Naomi knows that it is the Lord who brought her back to Bethlehem. But her verdict is that she left full and returned empty. In truth, her family left in desperation and need. She was full in the sense of having a husband and two sons. And God had taken them from her. But in his kind providence, the news of his merciful, steadfast love reached her in Moab. And God brought her home to experience his blessings upon his people. And as verse 22 tells us, she arrived home at a fortuitous time, the beginning of the barley harvest. And that too was God's kindness. She did not return empty. Ruth came back with her. Ruth loved her even when she would have shunned that love. And as this story unfolds, Ruth will prove to be the source of tremendous blessings for Naomi. We can learn much from Naomi's blindness. It's so easy in our suffering to miss the kindness of God expressed through the gift of other people. The text from a faithful friend who's genuinely checking on us. The sincere question, how are you? Where the person actually waits for you to answer and wants to listen to your reply. A hug from a child who is grateful for your love and care at the end of a hard day. The faithful prayers of a mother, the wise counsel of a father or mentor, a husband or wife who is struggling too but will not give up on you. God does rule over our darkest days, and in the midst of them, he gives us glimpses of his goodness, pinpricks through which shafts of light break in on us. Often those blessings come through the gift of other people in our lives. So Grace Family Church, let's learn to notice and be grateful for such blessings. If you are struggling with bitterness, it's comforting to know that Naomi's bitterness did not rob her of God's blessings to her. It did, however, shape how she went through her suffering. Bitterness compounds our pain, but gratitude lightens our load. And it is amazing how committed God is to showing mercy to his bitter daughter. 
I mean, think about it. Think about the story we've read. From the very beginning, Naomi has failed to position herself to receive God's mercy. Led by her husband, they leave the promised land and they head instead for the land of their enemies. Instead of responding to God's judgment by repenting, they run. And though Naomi didn't stop believing in God's rule, she wasn't looking for or expecting any mercy from God. You don't hear Naomi crying out to God in the midst of her pain here. She's not an example of that. She came back home, which was an act of faith, but not with any hope. She had concluded that God was against her, so just get from my space, stay far from me, because I am bad luck right now. Yet God was pleased and is pleased to crown even the undeserving and unsuspecting with his mercy. He does not wait for us to look for him. He comes looking for us. And he brings us home, even though it may take our hearts a long time to recognize his love. And that's what he has done for us in Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And even today, Jesus is after some of you. We've been given Naomi's story so that in the middle of our dark times, we can learn to wait patiently for the Lord, to train our eyes to see his goodness, to train our hearts to give thanks to him, and to resist the bitterness that can grow in our hearts. And we don't just have this negative example uh, of Naomi. We have a positive example in Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured unfathomable suffering, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Oh, my friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And remember his promise that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. One day, we will see with our eyes that the sufferings of this present time were not worth comparing with the glory that would then have been revealed in us. But we don't have to wait. We can know that today by faith. That's why we have stories like these, so that we can know how bad it can seem, but how good it will be. So, what then should we make of this first chapter of the book of Ruth? Many of you know the story, but the wonderful thing is that knowing the story doesn't spoil the ending. It's not like, you know, you, you watch the wrong part of the movie and now the whole movie is spoiled for you. It actually helps us to read this first chapter well. Because we can look ahead and see that throughout this chapter, God has been at work for Naomi's good. Yes, it was his hand at work in all that she suffered. She came back a broken woman, stripped of security, and barely clinging to a shred of hope, embittered and unable to, e to even see the tremendous blessing that had walked 50 miles beside her. But her suffering was not the final word. It would not be the sum of her life. He brought her back to live among his people, the people he had visited and had provided for, the people he was determined to bless despite their sin and rebellion. The people through whom he was determined to bring blessings to outsiders around the whole world. He brought her back to bless her in ways that she could not imagine and to bring unimaginable blessings through her. This then is how we can boil down chapter 1. Even when we are bitter, or even when we are blind and bitter... God is at work in our worst experiences to bring us unimaginable blessings. 
even when we are blind and bitter, God is at work in our worst experiences to bring us unimaginable blessings. Soon, through her daughter-in-law, the outsider, Naomi's land would be restored. She would have no concerns whatsoever for her well-being or her heritage. And the same woman who marveled at the state she returned in would announce, a son has been born to Naomi. And as we'll come to see in a few weeks, that son wasn't just any child. So what the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi in Ruth 4.14 was more magnificently true than they could possibly have imagined. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Even when we are blind and bitter, God is at work in our worst experiences to bring us unimaginable blessings. And those blessings have come even to us today through Naomi's greatest grandson, Jesus. The Lord has not left us without a Redeemer. He shall be to you a restorer of life. May his name be renowned in Israel and in Caymanus' estate and beyond, even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we just marvel at the fact that you have not left us without a Redeemer. Lord, we were outsiders. We did not deserve your mercy. We were not looking for you. We were living our lives and doing our thing. But you came looking for us and you sent Jesus to redeem us. You sent him to buy us back so that we would belong to you and be a part of your family and, and, and be able to, to access God himself and be able to just, just be recipients of unimaginable blessings in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that your plan for us is to pour out your kindness on us forever. That, Lord, is amazing because we deserve none of that. So, Lord, help us to lift our eyes, even in the midst of difficult days, to see the blessings you have surrounded us with. Help us to recognize the gift of friends, uh, the gift of spouses, the gift of children, the gift of a church community. Help us to be the kind of community that displays steadfast love towards each other. Help us not to be fair with our friends who just kind of show up when things are good, but who walk with each other through difficulty. We ask this, Lord, so that your name would be honored, so that people would look at Grace Family Church and they would know that we are Christians by our love for each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.